And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast on all things education and politics. I'm Kevin Richer. Clark Corbin is on vacation this week. And as you might recall from last week's podcast, Clark is in the Cayman Islands for a scuba diving trip. And he's hoping to see sharks. I hope he sees sharks too. But I also hope he's back with us next week in one piece. This week, I'm going to be joined by Seth O'Gilvy from Idaho Public Television and Idaho Reports. We're going to sit down and talk about rural economics and rural politics and how that all intersects with K-12 policy in Idaho. First, this week's headlines. The debate over transgender student policies took another turn Wednesday. State officials in Texas said they will sue the Obama administration over the issue. As you'll recall, the White House issued a series of transgender guidelines on May 13th, and that triggered harsh criticism from Republicans in Idaho and across the nation. Eleven states are parties to the Texas lawsuit. Idaho has not signed on. But as we reported on Wednesday, Governor Butch Otter plans to file a friend-of-the-court brief supporting the Texas lawsuit. Meanwhile, districts across the state are considering how to address transgender student issues and how to create a safe learning environment for students who are wrestling with questions of gender identity. Some districts have adopted guidelines or they're considering guidelines that pretty much mirror the White House's recommendations on transgender bathrooms. You can go to idoednews.org for my full story. And while you're there, go to my blog and find out why the state removed a reference to student birth gender from an application. It's a story we reported first at Idaho Education News. In the Magic Valley, the small town of Dietrich has been rocked by disturbing reports of sexual abuse. Three former high school football teammates faced charges in connection with the attack, and two of the students faced felony counts of sexual assault. The three suspects are white, and they are charged with using a coat hanger to assault a black male classmate. The parents of the alleged victim have filed a $10 million lawsuit saying school officials ignored or even encouraged the pattern of attacks. We'll continue to track this story. Now to this week's guest. Three things you need to know about Seth Ogilvy, the producer at Idaho Reports. First off, Seth is a rival podcaster. He's the co-host of the periodic Point of Personal Privilege podcast. Now, now, trash talk aside, Seth and Melissa Davlin do a terrific job of talking about Idaho politics. So if you don't already listen to their podcast, you really ought to. Second, Seth is a big soccer fan, just like me. So that's why you're going to hear a few references to next month's European Soccer Championships, which we soccer fans call Euro 2016. And you'll hear a reference or two to the Copa America tournament. Third, and most importantly for our show today, Seth has been out on the road the past few weeks. He's been in Orofino and Payette and Rexburg, and he's been getting a feel for what's on people's minds in these towns. And he's found that education isn't that big an issue. And that's what I wanted to talk to him about. And here's our conversation. Joined right now by Seth O'Gilvy from Idaho Public TV, Idaho Reports. Welcome to uh, the weekly podcast on K-12. This this is great. I assume that we're going to talk a lot about English Premier League football because that's what you did when you came on the For a Personal Privilege podcast. I I, I could put you on the spot about Euro 2016 or Copa America. but uh, I I think you've got a much better idea of Copa America because you're going. You're going to be there. I'm going. I'm going to see part of Copa America. I'm going to be there for one of the quarterfinals in Seattle. I I can't wait. But uh, Clark Corbin will see turtles. You're going to see footballers. uh, Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, he can go... uh, 
he can go chase sharks as as he as he will in the Caymans, but uh, I'll take my chances watching soccer. <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful vacation. Well deserved, probably too. Uh, I that's my story and sticking with it. <laughs> You've been on the road, but not on vacation these past few weeks leading into the election. You and, and the Idaho Reports crew went out on the road. You went to Orofino, you went to Payette, you went to Rexburg to try to get a sense of what the pulse of rural Idaho is at this point in time, not just uh, heading into the election, but beyond. What did you hear and how did it relate to education? Well, the, the interesting thing with education is it's been such the top of mind for the last four years, at least when I've been out in the field. And this year, we, we didn't really hear a whole lot of kind of cohesive messages from the politicians. So we did exactly what you're saying. We, we went to Orofino, we went to Rexburg, we went to Payette to try to find out what their concerns were, what was on the top of their minds. Mm -hmm. And in both Payette and Rexburg, without being prompted, no one talked to education. It wasn't until so we unless brought, brought up education, unless we brought it they up, wouldn't talk about they it. wouldn't talk it. Rexburg, obviously, they talked higher education because the, the transition between Ricks College and BYU-Idaho has been a huge impact on that community. Sure. So they were talking higher education, but almost everyone, even when I brought up education at Rexburg, said, eh, our schools seem fine. And they were happy with the, the pro temp Senator Hill's uh, work to get money into education. They thought that the, the education um, in their area was in good hands. They felt like they had a, an avenue to talk to their legislators mm -hmm. and the folks running the show. And they thought they were doing a good job. They believed in the task force. They thought it was a plan that was put in action. And they weren't really concerned enough that it was going down the wrong way, which is weird because uh, Representative Ron Nate has been very active on SBAC testing, Common Core, and was trying to use that in, as in the Blaine Amendment, in the Blaine to, Amendment. Uh, to fund religious education or, or, or work on something that could be used for vouchers. And if you watch some of those town hall meetings that they participated in, he brought that up a lot. It, the journalists were asking about that a lot, but the people seemingly didn't care. They were more focused on these larger kind of esoteric ideas of federal control and governance and things like that. It was almost more of a personality for them than it was the, the, the specific issues. See, and Rexburg really interests me out of all of this because if you were thinking about a community where education would be top of mind, it would be a community like Rexburg. It's a very young community. I mean, the median age is 23. I mean, that's, that's it, insane. It's not only the uh, young community. It's the youngest community in America. And it's growing. And you have a community where at least 50% of the adults have at least a certificate or a degree. So it's a fairly well-educated county. And even there, they're not talking about education. That that's uh, that kind of is mind-blowing to me. And I talked to uh, the governor, uh, C.L. Butch Otter, on election night, brought this issue up with him. I said, you know, I've been out in the field, and we've heard education for the past four years. Haven't heard it at all this year. And he's like, oh, you should go into journalism. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, we put these task force recommendations together. We have a plan. We're moving forward. People feel good about it. People think we're on the right trajectory, and that's why they're not talking about it. And you folks in the media should bring that up more often. So may maybe we've missed the boat. Maybe the, the populace has moved away from this education discussion that we're still kind of focused on. But conversely... But they're talking about jobs, and the whole idea of the task force was to create more uh, college and career-ready high school graduates so that, uh, so that you know, better jobs will come as a result of that. And, and something that I know you've heard me complain about numerous times, either in the State House or actually right before I do reports, is we don't really – those go-on rates aren't great. 
we don't really have any metrics for success that they want to be judged on. So we've spent money in education, and people have heard education talked about a lot in the state house. But as far as actually seeing any movement, I'm not sure if we've necessarily seen the A yet. So mm-hmm. it, it, maybe it's just that we're the only ones that aren't willing to prematurely leave this conversation. Um, I actually, as a but, side... But, but uh, to what you're saying, though, is, you know, we are in the middle of this task force process. We're three years in, but we're only three years in. So in terms of research, in terms of empirical data, you're not going to have very much. And I think you're right. You've got to keep your eyes on the prize here. Do these task force recommendations work? We need to find that out at some point. I don't think the, the verdict's in on that. We've got the, the new uh, payment. This is probably more, more your world, but how per pupil spending is going to be given right. out into the schools this year, which for the life of me, I can't understand. Right. But everyone the whole in edu- funding formula. Everyone in education process. says this is one of the most important things that's been done in education in a long it time. Is. It is. It, it's really esoteric. It's really complicated, but it's... You know, it is really important. So we're going to start seeing the, you know, the the verdict come in on the task force. We're going to fundamentally change how we fund our schools next year, and people aren't paying attention to this, which is kind of a little bit disconcerting, I would suppose, because if these politicians go into the field and they hear tax cuts, which they heard a lot of, they hear uh, federal control, which they heard a lot of, they hear public lands, they hear a little bit of transportation, they're all probably going to come back and say, "This is what my constituents care about." And that's what next year's session will probably be focused on. That might even be what the session after that's focused on, because no one's kind of holding their feet to the fire on this education issue anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a weird side note to that, uh, and I, I just want to bring up Onorfino for a second. The, I think that was the city that I heard the most out of uh, most talk of education, but it was bleak. It was it was kind of tied to we see all of our tax dollars go down to the Treasure Valley. We never see a lot of these tax dollars come back to our schools. So we're not paying attention to this because we've been overlooked all this time. Mm-hmm. And they kind of see education funding as this black hole that they'd much rather just deal with it themselves up here. And they're not looking to Boise or the federal government for any help because they don't perceive that they're getting any of that money back. Right. And, and Orofino has faced a lot of financial issues in the school district. They're one of the school districts that went to the four-day calendar uh, at the same time that uh, they're also one of the 90-some districts that uh, pass and continue to pass supplemental levies. So uh, maybe some some higher uh, concerns in terms of funding for, for a school district like Orofino. And the nuance of that is talking to the county commissioners and the folks in that area is they put those bonds really low. Mm-hmm. They know that it's hard to pass bonds there, and they're strategically... For like putting that number at just what they need and just what they think that the community will give. So th- they passed a lot of bonds, but they probably haven't passed a lot of bonds that haven't been on the ballot, that they just don't think that the appetite's there for. I was struck, too, as I watched the segments uh, and I watched what you found out in these three communities, a very different economic picture, which I think would translate into you need a very different uh, nexus between education and the economy. I mean, Rexburg, you know, the economy's growing pretty well. Payette's got all of the issues that come with being a border community that's seen retail kind of go by the wayside. Orofino is, you know, one of your traditional kind of, you know, logging communities, and those jobs have kind of gone away. And, and they're facing a different uh, economic uh, outlook than they've had in that part of the world for decades. The, the, the one nexus that I saw between all three communities, and it does come back to this, I, I think in our stories you heard a lot of economic development, jobs, things like that. 
the nexus that I kind of saw between all three communities was they saw education as something that was almost taking their daughters and sons out of the community. Mm -hmm. um, they would go to school at U of I. They'd never come back. They graduate from high school. They, in order to find a good-paying job, you had to leave Orofino or you had to leave Payette. And in Rexburg, it worked a little bit differently because it's such a university town that all they saw was all these thirty, or I guess it's twenty thousand kids that come in, mm -hmm. uh, go to a four years, and then leave. And the 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 jobs aren't in any of these communities for the kids that go to college and come back. They, they end up staying in the Treasure Valley or Spokane or Salt Lake City or where, wherever it is that they end up going to college because although they value that education, there's nothing to do with it there. Right. So, I, so you I get think, that chicken and egg argument of, you know, do you bring business in, can you bring business in in the hopes that you'll create jobs for college graduates to come back or do you need the college graduates to, for some reason, stay and hope that these jobs are going to uh, surface in their hometown? I mean... Exactly, and it's, I think, something that the Department of Commerce, the state as a whole, is really struggling with right now. They're trying to figure out what that is, and you talk to businesses, and they talk about a culture of education as opposed to, oh, we have this workforce. And I'm wondering if that's kind of, as we see these task force recommendations build out and the higher education plan build out over the next decade, maybe that's when you see this culture of education that the businesses are looking for as opposed to, oh, we've got this crop of coders in Payette about 20 of them, but there's no pipeline, there's no insurance that those will continue for a long period of time. So does any of this translate at all to what we saw in these three communities in the primary? Because it was all over the place. I mean, Orofino, you saw Cheryl Nuxel and Shannon McMillan losing in the primary. Payette, you had all the incumbents win, but Abby Lee winning by 28 votes. Rexburg. Probably and, still crossing your fingers and hoping that Candace Right, works yes. <laughs> and in Rexburg, you had Ron Nate. Uh, winning over, you know, the uh, endorsements from uh, Brent Hill uh, and Governor Otter. I mean, it, it seems like a microcosm of a primary that none of us have been able to fit into a tidy storyline. And I think, and I've been struggling with this for the last week and a half or so, and I, I think I've, in order for me to make sense of it in my brain, I, I, I think there's this duality of mind in the Republican Party right now. I think they very much want a Ron Nate in theory, but they don't like maybe how a Ron Nate operates. And I think you see something like that played out with the McMillan uh, Giddings race. I think what they did is they traded in an ideologically uh, ideological person that they liked for an ideological person that they liked that has a different style. Right. And I think a Not lot really much of a difference in terms of positions, but no. maybe in terms of uh, style and approach. And, and, because, temperament. and on the other side, you saw, I'm not necessarily sure how the, the gentleman from Grangeville will end up voting, but it seems like he'll be pretty close to, to Cheryl Nuxel, Senator Nuxel, as far as ideology. But he was very much about compromise. And I think you have a populace that wants ideological purity with compromise. The problem is, for the most part, that candidate doesn't exist. So they kind of pivot between, oh, Ron Nate's satisfactory to me, or... Uh, or this more mainstream person is more satisfactory to me, depending on, you know, kind of the whim of that election. Then you place on that the, the turnout rates that uh, uh, Dr. Weatherby t pointed out on our show last mm -hmm. week. And those, you kind of saw those, that, that dichotomy pivot with the amount of people who showed up to vote. The more people you got, the more people who went for compromise, the less people, the more ideological purity. 
So that's kind of how I can somewhat wrap my head around what happened when I jammed those kind of three concepts together. I can look at all the races and make sense of them. The one that made no sense to me at all was Wills. That's the um, one I think a lot of people are still scratching their head. 14-year veteran, we couldn't really see that loss coming. We couldn't see that turnover coming. And it sounds like from tracking down things later on, Wills maybe didn't know he was in a race as much as he was. Um, he's, to some extent, not a very active campaigner and hasn't had a very hard challenge for a while. There was uh, some issues with his stance on open carry, mm -hmm, yeah. which I think came back to haunt him a lot more than I think anyone knew. And it, it was an issue in a lot of these little forums that he was involved with, and he didn't back down on it. So I think a lot of people are pointing to maybe some comments during the campaign about open carry combined with maybe not knowing how deep in the campaign he was and being surprised by a challenger that was all that much more competent than he thought. So it's been a busy spring. Uh, Appreciate you catching up with uh, with me and, and our listeners to talk a little bit about what you found on the road. Uh, do you want a quick hazard a guess on who wins Euro 2016? Oh, gosh. This I'm, wasn't on the I'm, script, but I'm I have to go, ask it. I'm going to go... Let's go France. Why not? I'm, Let, I'm, the host I'm a quarter French and the host country. I'm actually kind of I'm on board with that. I've got a harder question for you since okay. we're putting each other on the spot. Chairman of House Ed next year. Yeah, I think the uh, the prevailing favorite would be Julie Van Orden. You would figure if she's interested in it, she's the vice chair. She's well-respected in education circles. I mean, I would imagine that it's her position uh, that she might have right of first refusal. But would, know, a, would a Wendy Horman? That's a good question. Would Wendy Horman want to leave JFAC where she's uh, built up a reputation and, you know, and become kind of a lead budget writer to go back to the education committee. I don't know. And, and you know, we still have to figure out how do the leadership elections affect who's making those decisions about who's running these committees. And I think the women will have a lot of say in that because there are going to be a ton of women in the legislature mm -hmm. next year. Yeah. So we'll see. So we'll see about uh, France and Euro. We'll see about house education. And uh, we'll, we'll catch up uh, probably uh, in the fall here. Okay, tell Clark I'm sorry. I hope I didn't ruin the podcast. No, I, 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 think, uh, I think the shark-free podcast is probably, uh, is probably going swimmingly, as it were. <laughs> Thanks, Seth. <laughs> I want to thank Seth for sitting down and talking with me this week. You can catch up with his stories at idahoptv.org, and you can catch him on the Point of Personal Privilege podcast. As we close out for another week, I want to urge you to go straight to idahoednews.org and check out our most read story of the week. Andrew Reed has a great profile of Barry Gans. Barry is a Boise student who's been accepted into the dance program at New York's Juilliard School for the Arts. He's one of only 24 dancers who was accepted into this prestigious program. Andrew has a great story here about a dedicated student, and I hope you'll check it out. And while you're there, I hope you'll check out our other stories on some high-achieving graduates. Congratulations to Barry and to everyone in Idaho's class of 2016. So that's a wrap for this week. I want to remind you to follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News, like us at the Idaho Education News Facebook page, or just go to the old-fashioned URL, idahoednews.org, for the latest education and political news. I'll be back next Friday with an all-new extra credit. With any luck, Clark will be back too. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.